Welcome to Agile Engineering. A podcast covering subjects like DevOps, Agile, Development, Cloud, and more. Featuring Liam Gulliver, Pete Gallagher, Louise Paling, Misha Bell, and Jonathan Ralph. With Tom Garrity. Uh, welcome to the Agile Engineering Podcast, episode number 11, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing further things around psychological safety with Tom Garrity joining us once again. And joining myself, Liam Gulliver, as always, are my co-hosts, Jonathan Ralph. Good evening. Louise Paling. Hello. And Misha Bell. Pete's actually on holiday at the moment. He's definitely earned it, but he will be back for next time. So... Uh, let's let's get straight into it. Tom, we were talking in between the last couple of episodes about good examples of where psychological safety has been, I guess, what's the right word, uh, absent? Yeah, lacking psychological safety or, or, or having no safety culture. I think last time we mentioned Chernobyl as a great example, and it really is. In 1986, in Russia, uh, hierarchy and authority and there was a blame for mistakes and there was certainly no safety culture in, in, and economic and political interests came before everything else. One of the official findings in the Chernobyl investigation stated that the design parameters and characteristics of the RBMK-1000 reactor on 26 April 1986 violated the safety standards and regulations so seriously that it could only be operated in a country where there was an inadequate safety culture. That is to say, it was so unsafe that if there was any safety culture in place, no one would even touch it. Hmm. That's pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah, not ideal. It's a failure on multiple levels in terms of psychological safety, as I understand it. You know, not just at people who were in charge of the shift, but all the way through to leadership as well, but for, for different reasons. As always with these things, there's never one fundamental cause, you know, it's a, there's always a systemic cause, there's always a, a series of disasters or a series of things that went wrong to result in such a disaster, because a, a series of fail-safe mechanisms and things have to fail. 31 people died in the disaster, but it's, it's estimated that around 4,000 people died as a result of the disaster itself. It actually happened due to a safety test to simulate a power cut, which had been run previously, but never quite fully, never fully successfully. And on this occasion, it was delayed and the second shift team came on who were less familiar uh, with the system. But of course, there was this lack of psychological safety, a lack of safety culture, which meant that although they were less familiar with the system and less comfortable running the test, they didn't raise their hand to say, oh, I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing this, or I, uh, I think this might be a problem, or I think there might be something wrong. And when the test was executed, it went wrong, some systems went wrong. Let's not worry too much about what, what systems exactly went wrong, but systems went wrong. And it led to a catastrophic series of events that resulted in two separate explosions. One was a steam explosion, which destroyed the reactor itself, and a second subsequent nuclear explosion that's the one we all know about. So it seems like the environment on a national level was the setting for it, and then the actual nuclear reactor itself was inside of that environment and so it was a cascading kind of effect of no psychological safety 
the lack of psychological safety was right from the very, very top of the kind of social hierarchy that that you could have got. Really, if it's that systemic, I mean, there's no real chance for, for it to have gone well. From what you're saying there, Misha, is I think it's fair to say that that sort of culture needs to start from the very top. You know, it needs to be embedded within within the organisation. But I suppose Tom's point about it being the design of the reactor that was the problem, it was the fact that that bad design in that environment was the cause. If if that reactor design had been in a an environment that was safer, maybe the flaws would have been spotted sooner. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, precisely. precisely. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been designed that way in the first place if they'd have had the psychological safety when they were designing it. I may be wrong on this, and because it was a little while ago when I watched Chernobyl, but I think like some of the supplementary information said that like there were the Americans had designed a nuclear reactor in a safe way that would have averted the explosion anyway, because they've had similar experiences before that, like on Three Mile Island, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it was another one as well. Is it more that the design never got a chance to be reviewed because there was a arrogance is the wrong word but there wasn't an opportunity for somebody to actually say hang on a minute so i think this is a fundamental point about psychological safety and one of the one of the key benefits of psychological safety is that it empowers people to highlight problems or concerns and then do something about it so if you've got an either an unsafe system or an unreliable system or a system that can simply be improved in some way having a psychologically safe team means that people can raise their hand at any time and say this needs fixing or this could be improved let's do it let's fix it and in, and begin to implement that continuous improvement and so you could have started with this rbm k1000 reactor that was inherently unsafe but with a psychologically safe team you'd end up a few years later with a good working safe system if you look at aviation if you look at trains if you look at power stations nowadays they're all so much safer because people have been able to raise their concerns and say that thing needs fixing. I think this is quite an interesting application of the topic as well to look at. For, for me anyway, like from a, a wider like kind of country point of view, we live in a society and a society is like so much bigger than, you know, a company that we have the starting environment to be able to have these conversations, to have, you know, even a concept of psychological safety that so many different nations just really just don't have yet. And... I think that that's quite a cool thing, like that we can implement that on, you know, a national level and then a company level and, you know, down to the, the kind of smallest, what well, a person. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask whether the, the nature of building a nuclear power station is more waterfall than agile. So how much did that apply to this? I mean, is it just the fact that psychological safety, even if they'd spent millions, was it sunk cost fallacy that we just went, well, this is the way it is? deal with it or do you think even projects that are more traditionally big design up front still can work in these scenarios yeah so i think that's a really good point because it leads on to one of our another case studies and nasa use waterfall project management they design and think about every possible scenario they can encounter they try and plan for everything but really crucially they also plan for uncertainty and they plan to be able to make changes later on should they need to. Obviously, you've got a launch window and you're firing some people into space on top of an explosion. So you don't get a chance really to do it 
a second time, which is why they plan everything to the nth degree. But they do have a strong safety culture. They have a strong culture of continuous improvement and strong culture of raising concerns, raising issues, raising suggestions for improvement, so that every time they do something, it can be better than the last. I think also they um, they have like fail safes and stuff to be able to make improvements, even if one of their spacecraft are actually in flight. I think it was Voyager like lost connection and wasn't going well it wasn't functioning because of some code or something and they managed to fix it whilst it was on its journey which is amazing it's very impressive although i think that probably goes against the point of is this uh, waterfall versus agile thing i imagine that most nuclear power plants were built via waterfall and some are safer than others and the psychological safety aspect probably has a lot to do with it, regardless of the methodology you're using. It's whether people are willing to point out potentially costly, timely issues within the environment they're in. It's really interesting to see, actually, that although for a lot of what NASA are doing, there are the the big design waterfall-style work, they're they're also possible to do these on-the-fly updates when they need to. Yeah, working from... We pretty much all do working in the tech industry. That's an incredible feat of engineering, but at the same time, utterly terrifying. You know, if you need to make a code chain whilst your billion dollar satellite is in flight on top of a rocket, say, or even just as it's leaving the atmosphere, and you have to make snap decisions there and then, how can you get a feedback loop short enough to say, I know that for a fact this is going to work and this will solve the problem? I mean, granted, also, none of us have worked at NASA with the sheer amount of computing power that they have available or the sheer amount of talent they've got available to them to be able to make those decisions. But I've lost hours of my day to the fact that I've slightly misspelt something or I've missed a semicolon. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think you actually raise a really good point because, and well, so one one we'll probably talk about in a bit, which is about cognitive load, and the different types of cognitive load, and particularly in regards to NASA engineers and their ability to make changes on the fly and their permission to make changes on the fly. Cognitive load really comes in there, but I think a- another key point that we should probably attack right now is the point that when psychological safety does fail, when it ceases to exist in an environment such as the Columbia shuttle disaster, then you've got a real disaster on your hands. This is the NASA example of where the guy, Rodney, Rodney Rocher, when the shuttle was taking off, when the rocket was taking off, he saw a piece of foam on a video replay come off and hit the shuttle during the launch. And he saw this as a concern and he tried to speak up but there were various reasons for, for that message not being received, ultimately, including the fact that it, it was going up a number of management layers. His main fear, ultimately, was that he was going to raise a concern that ultimately wasn't actually a concern, and he would cause a lot of work and grief for people, and he might have been wrong mm-hmm. about his concern. That's, that's where the safety comes in, knowing that you can say something and you could be wrong. Do you think that perhaps when you have projects, let's call a space mission a project, because ultimately that's kind of what it is, where there is such a high level of cost involved and investment involved that people are more scared of saying there's something wrong here. Is it something that pushes people into fear, even in psychologically safe environments? 
Yeah, I think there are increasing degrees of safety required as the scale of the project increases. And if you're dealing with, you know, with a space shuttle or the International Space Station or a mission to Mars, then the level of safety required for you to speak up and say, I think something might be wrong, but I might not be right about that. And, and I might cause a load of effort and work for people that that's actually unnecessary. You need a lot of safety to do that. Certainly my picture in my head of a NASA mission control tends to be seas of people. So in some respects, it feels like they've compartmentalized risk by throwing enough people at it to say, this is your area of expertise. You are here to make sure that your area works to the best of its ability. And therefore, maybe that gives people more confidence to speak up because they've put enough people on the problem to make sure that people can go, well, I'm going to say this. They may be in a culture that can say, well, if I see a problem in somebody else's station, I should talk about it. But maybe, again, it's about having the right number of people on a project to make sure that you feel confident in your own voice. Yeah, there's a really important point there about recognising expertise and putting people in roles where they have the permission, responsibility and authority to, to make a call on something. And actually, there's, there's a really interesting point about psychological safety and hierarchy here. Now, hierarchy, we've had Agile, we've had the, the, the Spotify model and Scrum models and all sorts of different organisational structures and stuff that tend to frame hierarchy in a bad light. They tend to frame hierarchy as a bad thing and their organisations should be as flat as possible. We should have no hierarchy. Now, actually, hierarchy itself can, it can go the other way, but hierarchy itself can be a great enabler for psychological safety because knowing who can make the call on something, knowing that you can escalate a decision to someone higher up than you, in fact, just knowing what the hierarchy is, is really key to psychological safety. And I'd say also knowing that the the people you escalate to will take what you're saying seriously and won't just ignore it and, and move on. Yes, kind of like you demonstrated in the talk where you talked about the Cotter, John Cotter's, is it Eight Steps of Change? That's the one. Yeah, having to overcome characters such as No-No by going and finding somebody that will be your kind of, you know, sponsor and somebody that's higher up in the hierarchy to you that can help you affect change and give you that psychological safety that you need, like a safety net, and then you can go and persuade other people. Mm. I mean, we're talking about examples here that are, are well-known and have very, very serious consequences, as I think the things that most of us here on the call have worked on probably have less significant consequences. But we still need to be in an environment where you feel you can speak up. So if you're working on something where you're not sure about the how ethical a feature you're putting in is, or uh, mm. are you are you automatically signing people up for mailing lists? It's not a big deal, right? No one's going to die from that. But do you feel comfortable talking to people about that? And that's a fantastic point about ethics, because from various scandals such as Enron and the Volkswagen emission scandal, in fact, the Volkswagen emission scandal, that was a software package designed by engineers, produced by engineers, put into cars by software engineers who presumably must have known what they were doing, knowing, knowing that they were tricking testing systems. Now, at some point, surely at least one engineer in that system must have thought, I'd like to raise my hand and say, I think what we're doing is a bit dodgy. I don't think we'd be doing this. At some point in that chain, however, there was a lack of psychological safety, which meant they didn't raise their hand. They didn't blow a whistle. 
Mm. Something that's entered into my kind of like train of thought from this bit of the conversation has been like commercial, like reputation sort of thing. Like I think that the more the rise of capitalism, obviously, like, you know, companies have like an outward facing um, view and people see business and personal as two very different things. And so I think that, yeah, like ethics and, and psychological safety and the feeling that you want to do the right thing and that you can do the right thing if it isn't in line with, you know, if it doesn't promote like a, a company's like reputation or it kind of could harm the company's reputation, then that can that that is becoming an increasing factor in prohibiting people from actually being able to do the right thing and, and to have that psychological safety that they might have otherwise had, had that not been a factor in, in their decision making. It takes a lot of self-awareness to be able to do this. And also I think and from a team's point of view, you need a lot of, well, diversity and inclusion. You need diversity of thought in a team to be able to think of the, the, the different implications of what you're doing. Is what you're doing absolutely fine for one group, but maybe for another group, it might actually cause them harm? Are you thinking things through correctly? So it kind of makes me think that in some respects, NASA have got to where they are because of decades worth of experience and clearly some tragic disasters. And is it the case that we should be learning from companies that have gone through that and just saying, well, we should just take their model anyway? Or is there a resistance for people thinking, well, I don't want to go for a completely overkill approach to to doing things when it might not be fit for purpose. Where do we get that balance between just saying, well, we should learn from these examples that you're mentioning today? I think it's a good question. There's no such thing as overkill or too much psychological safety. You know, you can never be too safe on a team. I was actually asked this recently. It's easy to confuse psychological safety and external safety, you know, actual risk, existential risk. You can have a very high performing team who feel very psychologically safe, but are under a quite significant existential risk. You know, if they're climbing a mountain, climbing K2, if, if there's at least 10 of them, one of them's definitely going to die. They're under that sort of scenario. Now, of course, in a software development team, probably no one's going to die. Fingers crossed. But it's still really, really important to have psychological safety and to be able to raise concerns or raise issues because there are, you know, if you're dealing with banking systems, you might think no one's going to die, but you might, someone might not be able to pay their rent that month because they couldn't get to their bank account. It's important stuff. How do we find that this works for teams that are mixed in terms of their introvert to extrovert status? How do we make sure that people, you know, you can understand that maybe when astronauts' lives are on the line, that maybe there's an impetus to share that news quite urgently because it's life or death. But in terms of those people that are more introverted, how do we make sure that they are feeling confident to be psychologically safe? Well, I've got a great example, I think, that works well with this. This is blatantly stolen from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. In 1990, there's a a plane crash. A plane was coming towards New York, massive storms, 500 delayed flights in the area. Uh, the plane got delayed like three different times on the w- on the way, so it had like been flying for an extra eighty minutes at lower altitude than normal, so it was using up all of its fuel. When it came to land, the way the pilots were talking to air traffic control was very tentative. Got transcript of of the co-pilot saying, "We're running low on fuel," which meant like we're on fumes. But he only mentioned it once and they never once mentioned the word emergency. And this is because the pilots 
were not American. They came from a different environment where Mm. it was very subservient and they were flying into New York where the air traffic controllers are famously, certainly at that time, very rude. And they have a lot of flights. I mean, they're just, they never stop. They haven't got time for niceties. Uh, And what happened was the plane uh, came into land, needed to pull up and go round again, and pretty much just needed to try straight again. But because of how this was worded with air traffic control, they ended up going right back round to the end of the queue and crashed having run out of fuel whilst circling the airport. I mean, this was only in 1990. It's not that long ago, really. The solution is to put the right procedures in place for the way things are worded. They need to make Mm. it so it's not a case of pilots get to decide how they talk to air traffic control. These are the phrases you use. These ones every time. This is what it means in these circumstances. We talked last time, I think it was, on a previous episode, I think, with Tom Hoyland about how important it was to have a shared vocabulary and, and ideally sort of a way of speaking as well. Now, understandably, we have n number of airlines in the world with hundreds of countries getting from there to where we are today where we have quite a high level of of safety and procedure to be followed and again i imagine not being in the 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 aviation industry but ways that they can flag where there are are issues all the way through the flight that's taken a quite a colossal event or catastrophic event should i say to change those things now, I guess in, in business, it's probably not too dissimilar. It, it, you know, you're not going to have a loss of life kind of level critical event, but you can, like Michelle was saying earlier, you can have that sheer level of reputational damage or monetary loss or any of those things which are catastrophic to, to a business. That could possibly be avoided by somebody saying, actually, you know what, guys, this is the, the wrong thing to, to do. This is a problem. We need to fix it before it goes out the door. On the aviation theme, I've watched a fascinating talk at NDC London when we used to be able to meet up with people called Fly the Enterprise Applying Aviation Lessons to DevOps, which is definitely worth a watch because he talks about the the fact that hierarchy was a cause of earlier incidents that Captain outranked first officer and actually they changed the, the run book to say there are responsibilities that need to be handed out during an incident and it doesn't matter what your title is somebody needs to take on these responsibilities to make sure that we can actually get through this incident fine it was the first time that i'd really thought about the level of detailed run books that the aviation industry has and how that actually helps to get rid of egos get rid of whether i'm outrank you or not just let's get this issue resolved now there's been personal first-hand experience of that. So Louise and I have been lucky enough to, to work together. I remember quite a big production incident at the time, and we were almost the first line of people to, to spot it and, and get on there. It didn't matter who was involved at that point. I was involved, Louise was involved. We brought in architects, members of the dev team. I think at some point we had testers as well. It was pretty much an all-hand situation, and it really didn't matter who sat where in, in the hierarchy at that point. For reference, Louise was the highest ranked person in the little group, but it didn't matter. We just had to get the problem solved and we all worked together, mobbed it and got through it. And, and in the software world, of course, being the highest ranked person also meant I was the person with least skills to be able to solve the problem. So I was the person who could direct traffic and that was about all I could do. Uh, and it, so it's important not to 
have egos in, in the situation and to make sure that everyone feels that they can say, I know how to fix this or I've got an idea of where the problem might be and can investigate and not have everybody looking to the highest paid person because that just doesn't help anyone. While we're on uh, while we're on aviation and uh, and psychological safety and stuff, there's a there's a really good example of checklists and cognitive load and how checklists and processes and procedures save lives. In essence, Boeing built the B seventeen Flying Fortress bomber in I think the thirties, and it was incredibly complex. It was an incredibly complex plane. It had loads of hydraulics and and, and controls and stuff. The first one crashed. The the test flight crashed on the runway but it didn't crash because it was a bad design it crashed because it was too complex to operate so they they put together a checklist and this is a in this huge checklist and there's maybe 70 or 80 things to check on this list but since creating that checklist without making any changes to the plane itself it's never crashed since and this speaks really to the point about cognitive load and the point by taking away the concern of the human brain to think, oh, what do I need to do now? What do I need to think about? They can solve the problems and they can actually act and do the things that we're good at. I have a good example of that. In hospitals, until relatively recently, and I'm talking like the past decade-ish, I think, a lot of operations went ahead where they operated on like the wrong leg or the wrong appendage or the wrong, well, the wrong thing, basically. Wait, hold on, what? What? <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. No, honestly, it's true. Like Because there was a miscommunication somewhere down the line, because there were many people that were involved when an operation was going to go ahead, operations went ahead where they would operate on the wrong thing. I literally used to work with a girl who like had serious problems with her eye um, and was meant to have an operation to fix it, and they operated on the wrong eye. So now they have a checklist in place and if you go in for an operation on your leg and I've <laughs> funnily enough one of my colleagues had a knee operation a few days ago and he showed us a picture of a uh, an arrow on his leg pointing to his knee so that the right leg got operated on <laughs> so yeah psych- <laughs> psychological safety and checklist very very important for you know everyone really um, and it's only because of the checklist that now you know the uh, amount of incidents where the wrong thing was done in an operating room um, have decreased. Yeah, and I've worked with somebody who used to do NHS scheduling software for 999 calls, and so that idea of people living and dying is, you know, some software systems are making that kind of call. So, yeah, absolutely, we need to make sure that teams are supported in realising the stakes when developing stuff that may not be medical but still may have an impact on people's lives. Can you imagine being one of the people in the hierarchy before the checklist was in place <laughs> who said, do you know what? I think actually it was the right leg that was meant to be operated on. <laughs> and then everybody else just saying, no, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. And, you know, I, yeah. I, what I think is interesting is when it was introduced into hospitals, the idea of checklists and, and having this. And it, it wasn't in many places received kindly it was yeah. it was kind of insulting the intelligence of these very very yeah. clever people but you know pilots don't use a checklist because they're stupid they they also are pretty intelligent they use it because it as tom says it lowers that cognitive load let's not think about things you don't need to exactly yeah. and that's a great example in fact of where of where hierarchy is a bad thing because these checklists and these mistakes are often because there's surgeons who are busy running from operation to operation coming in just getting stuck in slicing someone open and it's the nurses and the, in, in inverted commas lower level people who know what's going on but don't or at least in the past 
haven't had the psychological safety to raise a hand and say, oh, uh, sorry, Mr. High expensive, you know, well-paid, clever <laughs> surgeon. Uh, I think you're, I think it's the wrong leg. <laughs> yeah. Look at the pointing and calling systems in Japan's railway system and, and China in, in some respects. And, and actually that cognitive load is reduced by saying this is how you do your job. You, you check, you point at things and you recall. And having that structure almost makes everyone realise they're on the same page. And I, I think your cognitive load point is really key to this. Yeah. OK, so um, I think that is a very interesting point that we in many ways we go to an organization nowadays and we specialize we have people who are experts in what they do mm. except most of the people on this call are proponents of devops but uh, and what we're trying to do there is say no let's not go completely specialized and have one team just to do this and want to do that we want the people who are writing the software also to be running the system and monitoring production and making sure it's all working right and everybody's responsible for everything uh, no, yes, well, no. <laughs> I know, so, I'm being devil's advocate again. I guess, I guess what we're saying is, if Joe Developer is writing the code, he's also going to be responsible for running it, but that cognitive load could be taken away through run books and, and so on, and automating as much of that away as possible for him. So he only really has to concentrate on when stuff goes wrong. You know, that's when he needs to care about it more and get more involved. And we're not actually taking away the expertise there. What we're saying is he is, Joe, in your example, is the expertise. He is the expert in that bit of functionality, regardless of whether it's in yeah. development or in test or in production. Yeah, he doesn't um, need specialising than... the whole system, right? Yeah. But the culture, and this is where it does match with psychological safety, the culture is actually saying experts can still build these things, but everyone can question whether it's right or wrong. And so it feels that in many ways devops and psychological safety do go hand in hand because we are actually saying that everybody has the opportunity to not feel like they're just in their own pigeonhole and they can't say anything about everything else so just on jonathan's point what about people who raise things so often no matter how small and then start getting accused of being like the boy who cried wolf Ooh, oh that's a good question that's a particularly tricky scenario but i do think that Certainly in that scenario, a high degree of psychological safety in a team isn't going to be a bad thing. I think if you had a low degree of psychological safety in that scenario, then no one's going to raise the point. No one's going to say, why do you keep raising these things? Or I feel like you keep raising things that aren't an issue. Having psychological safety facilitates that discussion at the very least. And I would hope that a, a good team with a high degree of psychological safety and a good safety culture would have a um, constructive and valuable and humane discussion in that scenario. One way around it that, well, I mean, it's a very little kind of example that I've thought of is to have, again, checklists and documentation that people can refer to. So if somebody is inclined to pick up on different problems and stuff, instead of having to go and ask somebody all the time or like you know raise it if they are only if they're unsure whether it's actually a problem to have some kind of documentation or central repository where they can go and, and verify and if they can't find the answer in there then they can escalate it and go and ask somebody else yeah no, that makes sense i think in terms of your checklist point as well we're a software engineering based podcast so just sort of tying it into that a little bit closer so when you've got a go like when you've got a release going out most of the time, it, or the, the ideal is, should I say, you have a checklist that is the same every time. You don't deviate from it. 
There might be the odd special step for a given release or, or whatever, but this checklist is the thing that you do to get mm. version 21.5 out the door. But because it's a checklist and you have to do it every time, in theory, all those steps should always be the same each time. So you should be able to automate that, which then takes the cognitive load further away from the team to the point mm. where they don't actually have to think about it other than going, yep, yeah, okay, ship. Yeah, this is one of my key points when I'm talking to, to particularly tech organizations about psychological safety and DevOps. You, you cannot do DevOps without psychological safety. And on the flip side, doing what some people call DevOps, but could also be called resilience engineering or site reliability engineering or, or even chaos engineering, facilitates much higher degrees of psychological safety. Because if engineers mm -hmm. can deploy safely in the knowledge that their code is tested before it hits live, that even if it does fail, then it will fail gracefully or roll back, all that sort of stuff, then they feel safe in taking risks and doing cool stuff. Mm. Yeah, and I think in some respects, having a policy, having a procedure, takes some of the natural human nervousness about conflict out of communication, doesn't it? Because if I do my job properly and I'm following this, then I'm doing what you expect of me and therefore I'm not living in fear of getting it wrong and being thought badly of. And I think in some respects, half of what we're talking about here is making sure that we have a shared understanding that's hopefully written down because again, a lot of time training up new people where it's an osmosis process of just having to talk to 25 senior engineers to understand what the process is just wasteful of everybody's time and also doesn't give you something to point to to say, but I followed this, Is that, was this not right? How can we improve this? And it's back to a previous episode where I talked about the work, the system book, which proposes saying, just write everything down. Doesn't matter if it's 47 steps long, like Liam's saying about how to release version 21.5. At least then we can have a discussion about what's right and wrong about it. And so it's back to communication. For me, the confidence to say, I can speak up against something has to come from the fear of not being criticized for something that was obvious or should have been obvious if it wasn't already written down or it should have been written down. So you've got to feel safe to be able to take risks. I quite like that. Yeah, I think risk is the double-edged sword of this, isn't it? It's the opposite side. Yeah, yeah. The catalyst for me starting to think about psychological safety, and I think I might have mentioned this last time, was a manager that I had almost a decade ago who ruled by fear and who hated any degree of risk and would punish people for failure, punish people for taking risks or making mistakes. And the result was a tech organisation and indeed a, a, an entire organisation that was stagnant and no one moved forward. There was no innovation. Everything stayed exactly the same because the fear of doing anything new prevented anything new from happening. I have quite a nice example that I would probably like to end on for myself of when psychological safety is either there or the person just didn't really care and took the risk anyway. Stanislav Petrov, curiously, who was a Russian. Um, and uh, yeah, it, despite obviously having an environment where he probably didn't have the most psychological safety that people can have, he saved the world. He averted nuclear war because he went on his gut to say that actually, despite all of the warning systems and all of the surety that everybody had around him, that when an alarm went off saying that there'd been a nuclear incident when he said that, no, actually, I don't think it was. Was he the guy that was on the boat? 
was that in am i thinking of i could possibly be thinking of an other tom clancy film to be honest with you i don't know if he was on a boat um because <laughs> <laughs> it was in the cold war what i think wasn't it yeah he went on his gut instinct didn't he misha yeah yeah he did and he didn't fire a missile and so nuclear war was averted so on that note, let's move into key takeaways. I really like when we kept coming back throughout the, the episode to the cognitive load. We, we've given a lot of examples of big, scary things that have gone wrong due to lack of psychological safety. For me, it's the bits from our discussion that we can take back and use in our smaller lives. Uh, so I think that cognitive load and being aware of that is, is a really good one. The use of checklists to, to try and lower it, use of automation and process to try and make sure that you don't have to be trying to juggle a million things in your head at any one time. Mandatory shout out for checklist manifesto, Atul Gawande. Yeah. <laughs> I also really liked the point about people to be able to successfully report things they're concerned of. They need to have permission to do it, the responsibility to do it and the authority to do it. And I think that's something that we can look at roles in our organisations and where we are. And we can all think about whether we have given people those three things. I think for me, mirroring some of what Louise was saying there, my biggest takeaway is checklists for reducing cognitive load. In all honesty, until we've had the discussion today, I hadn't considered it in that light at all. I saw checklists as kind of a chore and a, a bit of a, like a necessary evil rather than something that's actually helpful to the team in terms of taking a literal weight off of their minds. Tom? Yeah, so probably my biggest takeaway, so I've used this before and I, this is something I really, I, I, I love. There's a quote by John Allspore that every incident is a learning opportunity. I've long held by that being a, a sincere truth, but I, I think it's wider than that. I think the word incident should be expanded to include not just you know service failures and, and deployments that have gone wrong or websites that have crashed, but everything from commercial failures. You know, if something doesn't succeed in the market, that's a learning opportunity. An argument uh, between two members of staff about something, that's a learning opportunity. A every incident is a learning opportunity, whether it's an explosion, an argument, or something that crashed. Uh, plain or software. For me, my kind of key takeaway, well, key takeaways are that the idea that like psychological safety isn't just something that happens in a closed environment of like a company or a team or, or something, but it's a global kind of thing and it goes to a national level. It affects life and society in so many different ways. And the fact that a lack of psychological safety can lead to death the the actual ultimate worst thing that you can have just because of protocols or um, a societal expectation that you won't rock the boat that you won't put your hand up and say that something's wrong with the plane the fact that it's society that has come to that and even if you had the vocabulary to be able to express that that was the case that you wouldn't do that because of the knock-on effects of the reputation of a company or the reputation of yourself or the fact that you might be wrong, uh, it it's profound. And to me, it's, yeah, it's just something to really think about. And my takeaways are that even though these things happen in other parts of the world and are massively 
impactful for those that survived them or didn't. It's that even though they might not directly correspond to what we do on a daily basis, they are still worth looking at because if we're to avoid to repeat the same again, we should at least consider things, not least because it's easier to criticise someone else's work than it is your own. And so in some respects, sitting as a team and looking through some of these and saying, well, what would we have done differently or how would we have done it is actually an exercise that might be of value in the same way that doing scenario planning where you think of worst case scenarios, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Black Friday preparation, for example, having the time in your day to actually think about what ifs and what could go wrong. It encourages people to think about contributing to reducing those and increasing psychological safety because we're actually saying have these discussions and pretend like this is happening. I, I seem to remember there was some state or government publication in America that had the zombie apocalypse fake guide had better engagement than any other form of disaster planning and it's kind of those scenarios where sometimes you need to go out of your norm to look at how do we as a team work safely or what would we do differently so I think communication and actually some of these Chernobyls and, and NASA incidents are still valuable to us as a team. Fantastic. Once again, Tom, huge thank you to you for, for joining us a second time. Thank it's you. been an absolute pleasure again. And thank you folks for listening to the Agile Engineering Podcast. If you'd like to know more around psychological safety as well, you can check out Tom's website, which is psychsafety.co.uk, or you can actually get in touch with us on Twitter at at Agile Eng Podcast, go to our website, agileengineeringpodcast.com, or you can contribute topics for discussion directly to our GitHub repo, which is github.com forward slash Agile Engineering Podcast. As always, uh, if you enjoyed what you've listened to on this episode, you can subscribe to our Patreon for early episodes, completely uncut episodes, and behind the scenes content by going to patreon.com forward slash Agile Engineering. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time.